Thank you, Pastor Randy. I'm grateful for this opportunity to, to be in God's Word this week and to prepare. Matthew chapter 2 is where we'll be looking today. Matthew chapter 2, and we'll begin by reading the first 18 verses. Matthew chapter 2. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we have seen his star in the east and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And when he had gathered all the chief priests and scribes of the people together, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. So they said to him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for thus it is written by the prophet, But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are not the least among the rulers of Judah, for out of you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod, when he had secretly called the wise men, determined from them what time the star appeared. And he sent them to Jerusalem, he sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for the young child. And when you have found him, bring back word to me that I may come and worship him also. When they heard the king, they departed. And behold, the star which they had seen in the east went before them till it came and stood over where the young child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced with exceeding great joy. And when they had come into the house, they saw the young child with Mary his mother and fell down and worshipped him. And when they had opened their treasures, they presented gifts to him, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Then, being divinely warned in a dream that they should not return to Herod, they departed for their own country another way. Now when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream, saying, Arise, take the young child and his mother, flee to Egypt, and stay there until I bring you word, for Herod will seek the young child to destroy him. When he arose, he took the young child and his mother by night and departed for Egypt, and was there until the death of Herod, that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by the Lord through the prophet, saying, Out of Egypt I called my son. Then Herod, when he saw that he was deceived by the wise men, was exceedingly angry. And he sent forth and put to death all the male children who were in Bethlehem and in all its districts, from two years old and under, according to the time which he had determined from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by Jeremiah the prophet, saying, A voice was heard in Ramah, lamentation, weeping, and great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children, refusing to be comforted, because they are no more. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for your holy word. We thank you for the truths in it, and I pray that they would be made clear to us today. I pray that you'd help me now to bring them out. I pray that you'd help us to respond with obedience, to respond with worship. In Jesus' name, amen. Have you ever noticed how news can bring about different reactions in people? If you were to tell a school teacher that it was going to snow all this week, and several inches would be sticking, they might be pretty happy. Or a child who was anticipating going back. But on the other hand, if you were to tell that to a, someone who worked with the highway department, they might not be quite as thrilled. News of a 
company doing poorly financially or doing well may have different meaning for different people. If someone is a an important investor in that company, if it's news of a company doing poorly, then he may not be too happy. But if they're doing well, he may be thrilled. Whereas a child who has no interest in such matters could not care less about such things. Uh, perhaps you've read C.S. Lewis's fictional story, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe from the Chronicles of Narnia. Now, this, this is not a full endorsement of, of Lewis's views or writings, but there's a situation in that book that illustrates something similar to what we see here in Matthew 2. Aslan, the Christ figure in those books, is returning to the land of Narnia, which is ruled by the White Witch. But when the inhabitants find out, many of them are overjoyed because they know that the time of their bondage is soon to be over. But the White Witch, on the other hand, is terrified. She is angry and fearful at the news of the return of the true king. And just as in that fictional story, there's different responses to the arrival of the true king. Here in Matthew 2, we see something similar. We see that Christ was a controversial figure, a controversial person. From his first days manifested here in the Lord Jesus on earth, and throughout his earthly ministry, he was controversial. People reacted in various ways to his miracles, to his teaching, to his claims of authority. And that didn't stop with the earthly ministry of Jesus, but continues today as well. The news of Christ, who he is, what he has done, it's controversial and it reveals the hearts of those who hear that news. Our response about him says much about us. In Matthew 2, we see the hearts of Herod, the scribes, the wise men, exposed by their reactions to Christ. See, three basic reactions here. Animosity, apathy, and adoration as the news of Christ comes to these various groups of people. They all knew that this Christ was the true king, the rightful ruler. They knew where he was supposed to be born. They knew he was to fulfill the scripture. Yet their response shows different things about them. And the same is true today. There are those who are actively opposed to Christ. Those who don't seem to care. And those who adore Him. Let's consider today what category do we fit in? What best describes us and may God help us see the wisdom of worshiping Christ? First of all, we must not respond to Christ with animosity, with hatred. Look at the first eight verses there. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we have seen his star in the east and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And when he had gathered all the chief priests and scribes of the people together, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. So they said to him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for thus it is written by the prophet, But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are not the least among the rulers of Judah, for out of you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod, when he had secretly called the wise men, determined from them what time the star appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for the young child, and when you have found him, bring back word to me, that I may come and worship him also. So the Bible says here that Herod and all Jerusalem was troubled at the news of the birth of the king of the Jews. Now, this word troubled, it's 
really a synonym for the word agitate, agitated. Have you ever seen a washing machine on that cycle where it's just shaking and vibrating, going crazy? That's sort of what we should think of here. That was This is what was going on in Herod's heart and in the hearts of the people. They were troubled. It evokes, for me, images of Psalm 2. Why do the nations rage and the people imagine a vain thing and how the kings of the earth and the rulers set themselves against the Lord and against His anointed, the word anointed, which means Messiah or Christ. Herod is upset, to say the least, by this news. And it troubled people who did not want to be troubled further. The rule of Herod the Great, which that's who this Herod was. The other Herods in the Bible are different people, but they come from this man's dynasty. Uh, He was not uh, a loved ruler. He was a cruel man. He was a fierce man. And Christ was a threat to him. He had several strikes against his claim to the throne. He was not a natural heir to the kingship, but instead he was appointed by the Roman Empire, which had dominion over the Jews at the time. Herod's ancestry was not Jewish, but Edomite. He presented himself as a Jewish convert and did things such as help to rebuild the temple, which was a project that took decades. It was not even completed until after his death. He married a Jewish wife, but he was not descended from David, to whom God had spoken promises of an everlasting kingdom. Herod was known for elaborate building projects, like great stadiums. He was also known for killing his adversaries, including his wife and his sons. One ancient writer said it was better to be Herod's sow, his pig, than his son, for the sow had a better chance of life. Herod thought he had much to lose by this one-born king of the Jews, but the irony is that he could not keep any of the things that he wanted so much to hold on to. Reminds me of Jim Elliott's famous quote. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. Except that it could be turned around for Herod. Who was a fool who held tightly to what he could not keep. And forfeited that which he could not have lost. He was a fool. He hated Christ. And his animosity was even disguised here by hypocrisy. He desired knowledge of Christ from the scribes. That seems like a good sign, right? He wants to know more about the king of the Jews. But a desire for knowledge is not always a sign of good. For Herod here, he wants this knowledge for an evil reason. He wants this information about the time of the star's appearance, about the exact location of the child. For what reason? To destroy him. But what's the reason he gives? He says in verse 8, that I may come and worship him also. So he's, he's lying about his true motives here. And his hatred was so great that it did not stop him from hurting others in his effort to rid himself of Christ. Notice what he did when the wise men did not return to tell him where Christ was. He did not take any chances, but based on the information he had, he ordered the death of all the baby boys two years old and under in the area of Bethlehem. Now, there have been different estimates. You know, how, how many people was that? We don't know. It, it doesn't say. Some people have said 40,000, but that's probably not an accurate number. Maybe a dozen, maybe 20 would be more accurate based on the population of Bethlehem in that time. But at any rate, this was a cruel thing for Herod to do, to slaughter these innocents in his effort to get rid of this rival king. 
Look down in verses 12 to 18 uh, as we consider what he did there. The Bible says, Then being divinely warned in a dream that they should not return to Herod, they departed for their own country another way. Now when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream, saying, Arise, take the young child and his mother, flee to Egypt and stay there until I bring you word, for Herod will seek the young child to destroy him. When he arose, he took the young child and his mother by night and departed for Egypt and was there until the death of Herod, that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by the Lord through the prophet, saying, Out of Egypt I called my son. Then Herod, when he saw that he was deceived by the wise men, was exceedingly angry, and he sent forth and put to death all the male children who were in Bethlehem and in all its districts, from two years old and under, according to the time which he had determined from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by Jeremiah the prophet, saying, A voice was heard in Ramah, lamentation, weeping and great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children, refusing to be comforted, because they are no more. So what was Herod's attitude toward Christ? He saw him as a threat. Now we need to turn this around, don't we? And ask ourselves, do we see Christ this way? Is Christ a threat to me? Is Christ a threat Does his kingship endanger my schedule, my convenience, my plans, my desires, my comfort? Herod was not afraid of a baby in a manger as such. He feared the one who had the true rights to the throne, a kingdom that was not rightfully his. Like a wolf in sheep's clothing, he could give lip service to Christ, as we're all capable of doing. We can sing his praise. We can speak of how great he is. But it's possible for someone to do that and even to sit in church week after week to hear God's word preached, to read it, to know it, but to not have the right heart. Christ is not simply a babe in a manger. He's not merely a historical personage, although he is historical. He is the true living and reigning king, the one before whom every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that he's Lord. The one who has the rights over every inch of creation including every part of our lives. Now, if Christ can be seen as one option among many, if he can be seen as someone who means a lot to us but doesn't make any demands on our lives, then that's safe for a lot of people. A lot of people can live with that Christ. But when it comes to a Christ who has demands on my life, who tells me what to do, who is my Lord and Master, that can be a different matter, can it? And the natural man fights tooth and nail against that concept. So let's examine our hearts. Is Christ a threat to us? Is he one that we hate or is he one that we love? Is he one that we adore? Will we be like Herod trying to hold on to the slippery, temporary things of this world? Or will we cling to the everlasting treasure of Jesus Christ? God will accomplish his purposes. Notice that Herod, all his calculations, all his severe measures against the baby boys in Bethlehem and that region could not thwart God's plan. And neither can we. So let us simply submit to him in gladness. He doesn't call for a servile submission that still retains hatred in our heart, but God demands that we be happy and joyful in him. Let us not respond to the news of Christ with animosity. And secondly, we must not respond to Christ with apathy. 
Perhaps you've heard the humorous anecdote told about a man who did not know and did not care what was wrong with society when the reality was ignorance, lack of knowledge, and apathy. People not caring were two of the most serious problems, but he didn't know it. He didn't care. He became an illustration for the very thing he was concerned with. And the chief priests and the scribes, they did not suffer from ignorance. They had knowledge, but they certainly had the problem of apathy. Look at Matthew 2, verses 4 to 6. And when he had gathered all the chief priests and scribes of the people together, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. So they said to him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for thus it is written by the prophet, But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are not the least among the rulers of Judah, for out of you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. These were the religious leaders, the, the chief priests and scribes. Herod had uh, a situation where many people composed the chief priest. The, the high priest was really supposed to be one person, but this group was made up of people that had been put in that office. And that was advantageous uh, for, for some of them. And then the scribes were those who really knew the scriptures well also. And these are people that should have known better. These are people that should have cared. But they were indifferent. They were foolish. They had no excuse. They knew the scriptures. They knew the scriptures probably better than these wise men who traveled from afar. Evidently, they didn't have very much trouble here finding the information Herod needed. They quoted words that are from Micah 5 verse 2. Uh, the one born in Bethlehem here is the one to be the ruler. And there were even two Bethlehems in the land. There was one in the tribe of Zebulun, which was much further north. And then there was one here in Bethlehem, but this, or one in Judah rather. And this indicates that they knew he was going to be born there in the Bethlehem in the land of Judah. They had the precise location of Messiah's birth, of the Christ, of the one who is the rightful ruler of Israel. Yet they failed to be moved by the prospect of having these prophecies fulfilled before their very eyes. How would it have been to know that this is the place and this is the time, the prophecies coming to pass, and just to miss it, just to allow it to go on like it was another day? They should have cared. Maybe they thought they didn't need this ruler. Maybe they secretly were thinking he was going to be a threat to their position. We know that later that certainly was in their minds of these people. And this problem, this has not gone away today, has it? Wouldn't you say, as you look around, perhaps in American culture, we, we see obviously some animosity, but for many people, it's indifference. It's apathy. People just don't care. Talk to someone about Christ. They may, they may listen. They may entertain you. They may smile. And, and they may just think to themselves, that's nice, but I've got some other things to do now. I just don't really care. This really has no impact on my life. And it's easy in an age where we have so many distractions, so many conveniences, so much entertainment. Sometimes it can be hard when we are saturated with those things to be excited about the kingship of Jesus Christ. Many people just can't bother with those spiritual things right now. Too many other things. Maybe it's their sports. Maybe it's their business. Maybe it's their family. Something else that must take first place for them right now. Before Christ. I've got to get these other things in place first. Everything seems to be going so well. They're happy with the status quo. Don't want to rock the boat. 
But to think this way is to show incredible nearsightedness, to lose an eternal perspective. Christ has the right to rule over all creation. And when we consider who he is, we can't have any excuse for being indifferent. How many indifferent people today walk about this country with shelves full of Bibles and Christian books? How many indifferent people listen to God's word week after week? Yet for them, the precious seed of God's word is choked out by the cares of this life. So let's consider something the chief priests and scribes should have thought even more about. They dealt with one prophecy in this passage here in Matthew 2. They should have been thrilled to actually see what the prophets had only foreseen. They were likely aware of many other prophecies about Christ. We know now that over 300 prophecies were fulfilled in the life of Jesus upon this earth. And when you think of the odds of that, it's not something that can be easily dismissed. If, if someone were to consider maybe one prophecy, they might be able to say, well, that just was a coincidence. That just, he happened to be in the right place at the right time, and therefore that can be said of him. That could have happened to anybody else on this earth. But when you consider over 300 prophecies, those are impossible odds. Somebody has calculated, and I don't, I don't know how people come up with these calculations exactly, but for... Eight of those prophecies to be fulfilled in one person would be a one in one quadrillion chance of happening. And I believe that's a one with 18 zeros after it. That's, that's a huge, huge number, impossible odds. But if, if that's the case, I don't know exactly how accurate that would be, but if that's the case, imagine 300 prophecies in one person for all those predictions to be 100% accurate. No one but God could bring these things to pass. Impossible odds prove the trustworthiness of God. The fulfilled prophecy that we see is a testimony to the truth of God's word and to the true identity of King Jesus as the Son of God, as the rightful ruler of Israel, and not just Israel, but of my life, of the entire universe. So we should not be indifferent. We should be excited by the truth of God's word. We should be eager to study, to obey, to share. But how often does our zeal wax cold? Let's pray that God would keep the flame burning in our hearts as we focus on his revelation of himself in his word, as we walk in his ways, as we proclaim his truth by our lives and by our words. And another word of warning is in order here, I believe, lest indifference be thought to be a step better than animosity. You might think, well, someone that's not fiercely against Christ, it, you know, if, if they're just indifferent and not actively opposing him, maybe that's not quite so bad, but. Maybe they're sort of in a neutral category, but the idea of neutrality toward Christ is a myth. There's no such thing. Jesus himself said, he that is not with me is against me. We have to be on one side or the other. We can't straddle the fence with Christ. An attitude of disinterest in him is rebellion just as much as active opposition. It's really just a cousin. It's in the same camp, and it often results in active opposition when one's interests become threatened. Later in Matthew's gospel, these chief priests and scribes, the same class of people, were displeased with the shouts of Hosanna at Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem. They were the ones who mocked him. They condemned him to death. Their very words against him in Matthew 27, 41 to 43 fulfilled prophecy of Psalm 22, 8. This is a warning for those who say that I'm not against Christ, but who will not turn to him? The rebellion that's in their hearts will one day become just as clear as it did with these religious leaders.
May God save us from this animosity and from this apathy and work in us hearts that adore Him. That's the last point this morning that we need to respond to Christ with adoration. Let's look at the example of the wise men. Verses 1 and 2. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we have seen his star in the east and have come to worship him. In verses 7 to 12. Then Herod, when he had secretly called the wise men, determined from them what time the star appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search diligently for the young child. And when you have found him, bring back word to me that I may come and worship him also. And when they heard the king, they departed. And behold, the star which they had seen in the east went before them till it came and stood over where the young child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced with exceedingly great joy. And when they had come into the house, they saw the young child with Mary, his mother, and fell down and worshipped him. And when they had opened their treasures, they presented gifts to him, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Then being divinely warned in a dream that they should not return to Herod, they departed for their own country another way. So we see the wise men responding in a different way from Herod, and from the scribes and chief priests. They responded with adoration, with worship. So, as we look at this point, I'm sure the question arises, who were these wise men? What's, what, what's the deal with these guys here? Well, they were Gentiles. They were not Jews. And I believe there's an irony here recorded in Matthew's gospel. Matthew, I think one of his purposes is to show that Jesus is the rightful king of the Jews. He is the Messiah. He is the Christ. He's the one the scriptures foretold. He's the one the nation of Israel should have been looking for and welcomed with open arms. And there's a great irony in the first recorded worshipers in Matthew's gospel being Gentiles, being people that were not Jewish. As a whole, the Jews rejected and crucified him. Obviously, some turned to him, his disciples um, and others, but these are Gentiles who have come to worship him. And the word that's translated wise men is a word where we get our word magician and our word magistrate from, this word of magi. And we see magi mentioned back in the book of Daniel. Chapter 2 is one place that it's mentioned where King Nebuchadnezzar has these different uh, wise men in his court. And we find in verse 48 of chapter 2 in Daniel that Daniel became the chief of the governors over all the wise men of Babylon. That is, of those magi. And Daniel was a godly man, a man who stood for God's truth, a man who worshipped the true God. And as chief of the governors over these magi, I would say he had some influence on them. I would say he taught them some things. And Daniel prophesied about Messiah, the prince, in Daniel 9.25. And Daniel even prophesied the timing of this event. And could it be that these wise men who came to see Christ, the newborn king here, could it be that they knew about the timing from the instruction of Daniel? We don't know 100% for sure where these wise men were from. They may have been from Babylon. They may have been from Persia. We know they came from the east, but they were men who had knowledge. They, they were men who had knowledge of the stars, some knowledge of astronomy, but in that time as well, there was some astrology mixed with it, and we don't know exactly what all was going on in their minds there. 
But uh, these were Gentiles. And they were people who uh, some have said were kings. Now, were they? Well, in Isaiah 60, which uh, we had read from, there's prophecy about kings coming uh, and bringing gifts, gifts such as incense and gold. We don't know that this is actually the fulfillment of that, especially when you look at the locations of the dromedaries of Midian and Ephah. Midian was south of Israel, and uh, Sheba, of course, was, was even further south. But at any rate, if this did not fulfill this prophecy, this is an example of the same kind of thing. Gentiles, the nations were coming in to worship Christ. His own people were not recognizing who he was, but yet people from far, people from heathen nations were coming to worship him. And they were certainly bringing gifts that were fit for a king. In Psalm 72, the kings of Tarshish and of the Isles shall bring presents. The kings of Sheba and Seba shall offer gifts. Again, Tarshish, this is from the east, probably Spain, Sheba from the south. But they're offering gifts, and these wise men are doing that as well. So were they kings? Well, we don't know for sure. They, they could have been. They might have been. But we do know that they came to worship Christ, and they brought him gifts that were fit for a king. But what was the star? Numbers 24:17 speaks of a star coming out of Jacob and a scepter rising out of Israel. Some think that this may have been something that the wise men knew about and were looking for. And if so, you know, that still leaves us with the question, what, what, what was the thing they saw? Did they see a convergence of the planets? Did they see a comet, a meteor? Did they see some supernatural manifestation of light? A supernova? What was it? Well, again, we're not told. We just know it's a star. And my inclination is that this is a supernatural thing that's going on here. Some think this is a manifestation of the Shekinah glory with which God led his people with a light by day and a pillar of fire by night when he brought them out of Egypt. But at any point, God gave them a sign to lead them where they needed to go. How many were there? How many wise men were there? I see an absence of that word three, don't you? We sing about we three kings of Orient are. Where does that come from? Well, there are three gifts. The gold, the frankincense, and the myrrh. But that does not prove that there were three wise men. There may have been three wise men. There may have been 300 wise men. We don't know how many came. But we do know there were three gifts. And then that leaves us with another question. Do the gifts have any significance in themselves? Gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Gold certainly is a gift fit for a king, a gift of royalty. Uh, frankincense, we could point to the Old Testament usage of it as being part of what was offered up to God in the Holy of Holies as a sweet-smelling sacrifice to him. Myrrh, uh, the only other usages of it in the New Testament are in conjunction with Jesus' suffering and death. He was offered vinegar mingled with myrrh as an anesthetic on the cross. Uh, he was offered, or he was rather brought myrrh as part of the spices and things for embalming his body. And so based on these things, some have, have conjectured that the wise men were bringing him gifts as a king, as God, and as a sacrifice. That song, We Three Kings, 
See, uh, glorious now, behold him arise, king and God and sacrifice. And there's other verses in that song that expound on those gifts. And this is not something that's just found in ancient or modern times, but there are commentators and preachers and scholars in all ages of church history, it seems, that would, would think this way. And then there are others that say there's absolutely no significance to what these are. I don't know the answer, but my opinion is that there's some significance here. Maybe more than the Magi knew, but we do know that these are gifts that are fit for a king. And Jesus truly is the king, and they came to worship him. So there are things that we don't know about the wise men. We don't know whether they were kings. We don't know how many there were. We don't know their names, contrary to some tradition there as well. Um, But we do know they were Gentiles. They brought three gifts. They worshipped Christ. And we also notice uh, that they came where? To the manger? No. Came to the house. We had some Christmas ornaments and figurines set up in our home. And uh, one of Crystal's piano students were asking, you know, why the wise men were, were so far off of where baby Jesus was over here in the manger. Well, they did not come to the exact place he was born. Mary and Joseph were in a house by this time. We don't know exactly how much later it was. But based upon Herod's inquiry of the wise men of when the star appeared and based upon his instructions to kill the baby boys two years old and under, we could surmise that Jesus may have been as old as two at this time. It's a possibility. But at any rate, uh, the important thing about the wise men is that they came to worship. And they are an example to us in that. Look at verse 2, that word saying. Uh, what I've read is the idea that this is a continual saying that they are really trying to find out. They're going around asking. They're saying, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? And asking and again and again and again. Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? They are really wanting to find out. They haven't made this long trek for no reason. And they state their purpose. They have come to worship him. And that's exactly what they do. In verse 11, they fell down and worshipped him. Now, this word that's translated as worship here uh, is a word that's, um, at least in the in the King James translation, I'm not sure about others, but in, uh, in that translation, it's always rendered as a form of the word worship. And it's the idea of kissing the hand or of kissing the ground. It's a statement by action about the one that's being worshipped and about the one worshipping. What does it say? Well, when one kisses the hand or the ground of of a king or of someone of greater rank, that shows that person's superiority. And the person who's performing that action, what does it show about them? Well, it shows their inferiority. So you are greater than I. You are worthy of my adoration. You are worthy of my respect, of my homage to you. And that's what they are showing here. They are ascribing worth is what the word worship means. To Christ. And this is based upon the revelation they had from God. They saw the star. They knew that he was a king and they may well have known much more. We don't know exactly what these wise men knew. And then they get a a dream from the Lord in, in verse 12 there. And they respond to that with obedience. They go and they depart. They don't go back to Herod. And their worship shows In their interest, their understanding, their obedience, their gifts. They consecrate all this to Christ, the King. 
And again, we don't know exactly how much they knew. But I think we could safely say that we have more knowledge than they. And they acted according to the light they had, whereas Herod and the scribes surely didn't. And I don't know about you, but I don't think my life has accurately lived. I don't think I can say that I have accurately fully lived up to all the light that I have received about Christ. But I want to. I want to be able to say in truth that I am worshiping God. I want to be able to manifest the attitude that these wise men had. And as we consider that, how should we worship Christ? Well, we know that he is a prophet and a priest and a king. He is the one who speaks the words of God to us. Yea, he is God himself. As we would see later on in Matthew's gospel, for example, when he preaches the Sermon on the Mount, he would utter statements such as, I say unto you. Whereas the prophets of old would say, thus says the Lord. Jesus could say, I say unto you, because he's God. He is our priest. He is the one who offers intercession to God for us. He lives forever to do that for his saints. And he's also the one who offered sacrifice for us. Different from any other priest who would have to offer that sacrifice yearly and offer a sacrifice for his own sins first before the sins of the people. Jesus is a perfect high priest who had no sin and who could sacrifice not an animal but himself in our place and be accepted by God. And he is our king. He is the one who leads us. He is the one who guards and protects us. He is the one who feeds us and shepherds us. He is our creator, our redeemer, our savior, our Lord. One who has done for us what no one else could do. And is he not worthy of worship? Is he not worthy of having praise and greatness ascribed to his name? He absolutely is. And worship is a heart attitude. But like other attitudes, it manifests itself in our actions. Do we claim to worship God? If so, good. But what liars we make ourselves if we use our time, our money, and our speech in ways that say otherwise. Worship results in obedience. And the wise men manifested this. They could have had the thought cross their mind. Well, you know, Herod's a pretty violent guy. Uh, maybe we should return to him like he said, even though we've had this dream from God to, to go other way, otherwise. But they were truly wise and obeyed God rather than men. And sometimes we can get in a quandary like that, can't we? Uh, the wise men, uh, it, there's no indication that they wavered at all. But if our job was on the line based on our obedience to God or man, if the favor of a friend or a family member was on the line for us when it came to obeying God rather than men? Would we have the wisdom of worshiping God and be willing to forsake all those things for his sake? Or would we be foolish and try to hold on to the things that we could not truly retain? The wise men knew very little and worshiped. Let's remember that as we consider the, the great amount of knowledge that we have available to us in the scriptures. The more complete knowledge we have indicts us. The more we know, the more we are responsible. So let us worship God, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, the one who has reconciled us to himself by his death on the cross. This one is worthy of worship. And in this same gospel at the end, this king, he gives marching orders. He says to go and to make disciples of all nations, to baptize them and to teach them to observe all things that he has commanded 
this is the king that we are to be worshiping. Are we worshiping him with obedience? We've seen this morning the news of Christ will always bring a response. Hatred, indifference, or worship. In closing, why should we worship? Why is it wise? Well, it's wise because Jesus is the true king. All other rulers, all other powers on this earth are under his dominion and will one day go away. They're temporary. But his reign is permanent. Jesus fulfills prophecy. You know, again, there was, there was more than one Bethlehem. This was very specific. And this was not the only one. There are many other prophecies that he fulfilled in his life on earth. And this shows that God keeps his promises. And this God that is true to his word is one that we should bow before and worship. He keeps his promises for good for his people. But he also keeps his promises of vengeance to his enemies. I don't know about you, but I want to be among his people. I want to be one who knows his faithfulness and goodness for all generations. And it's also wise to worship because Jesus brings great joy. The wise men, when they saw the star, they rejoiced with exceedingly great joy. They were very happy. They were very thrilled at what they were about to experience. And Jesus, of course, is worthy of worship. It is wise to worship him. May God grant us knowledge that inspires worship in us, not indifference, not hatred, not knowledge that merely puffs up but or knowledge that we would use for our own agenda, but knowledge that leads to worship. Remember, there is no neutrality. You either worship Christ or you do not. He that is not with me is against me, he said in Luke eleven twenty three. And then let's consider the foolishness of not worshiping. Consider the brevity of your life. Consider Herod. His time was short, wasn't it? He was about to die. Until the death of Herod. Verse 15. And then verse 19. Now when Herod was dead, he died. His life was but a breath as are ours. Like Herod, we all will die. And it's also foolish not to worship because God has fulfilled his promises and is keeping his word. How could we be indifferent to that? How could we think to oppose that when this all-powerful, all-knowing God will do all his holy will? And then consider what affects your rejection, your foolishness of not worshiping. Consider what effects that could have upon others. Notice how it affected others in Herod's life. Look at the slaughter of the innocents. And look at the the slaughter of innocence even in our own day. It's a result of people not worshiping God. Not taking His commands seriously. Not considering that He has full rights over their lives. And then consider that God will hold you and me accountable for our knowledge. What did we do with Jesus? What did we do with all this great Bible truth that we know? Did we use it for our own agenda? Did we use it to look good in company? Did we use it to... To uh, make our mom and dads feel better that we were okay and on our way to heaven? Or did we use it for true worship? So, consider this morning. Do you show animosity, apathy, or adoration to Christ? And consider again the quote from Jim Elliott. He is no fool who gives up what he cannot gain or cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. He is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. But on the other hand, he is a fool who tries to retain what he cannot keep, to give up what he could not lose. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you again for your word. Thank you for Christ. 
thank you for this true king. And may we regard him as king over our lives. Father, I pray that you would root out the vestiges of of pride in our hearts and humble us in worship before you. That every part of our lives would be seen to be in submission to you. That you would work in our lives this true attitude of the heart that causes us to respond in obedience to you. Father, I pray that our relationships, our words, our actions, all these things would be evidence of the wisdom that you have given to us, not that we thought of ourselves, but that you have revealed to us and that you have worked in our hearts by your spirit. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.